Our message is built upon Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Let us pray. And now, Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Responsibility without authority has been called the worst management strategy. Suppose you have a department in a company charged with making a thousand widgets a month, which shouldn't be very uh, hard to do based upon past experience. There's a manager over that department. Let's say her name is Mary. And Mary, the manager, uh, gets along fine with her team until one day a particular employee is showing up late and sometimes not showing up at all. Uh, this begins to affect the productivity of the department, so Mary does what good managers do and gets together with the uh, employee to go over minimum acceptable expectations for the role and to um, develop a performance improvement plan and to do what managers do to bring the best out of their team. But sometimes our best doesn't work, and over time it's clear that this employee is not going to meet standards, so Mary does the hard part and lets the employee go. But when Mary's boss finds out, he immediately overrides the decision. You see, the owner of the company has a golfing buddy, and that buddy's son is the offending employee. The owner hired uh, the, the son as a favor to his golfing buddy, and it's a problem. So. Uh, the employee is back on the job, and it quickly becomes apparent throughout the entire department that Mary has no teeth when it comes to the hard work of managing. And pretty soon, the collective uh, work ethic of the entire department falls off and productivity goes down. And after several months of not making quotas, Mary is called on the carpet by her supervisors. Mary has found herself in the unenviable position of having responsibility without the corresponding authority. The worst management strategy. And the corollary is also true of assuming all the authority and shirking all the responsibility. There's a certain authority that is conferred upon clergy people that enables them to go about doing a lot of good, and generally that's what most pastors do, but there are exceptions every once in a while. Um, it's those who assume the mantle of authority but shirk their responsibility for the flock under their care, uh, sometimes to uh, feed certain carnal passions, that makes for steamy headlines, or, or sometimes to feed certain worldly passions. And I think we've all heard about the high-profile evangelist who is funding a lavish lifestyle using the contributions of the flock. God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel to address what were called false shepherds. Uh, the word pastor comes from pastoral, uh, 
it, it means shepherd. And we are charged as clergy people to care for uh, the flock entrusted to us by the Almighty. Um, and Ezekiel had this to say about false shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not the shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. Fast forward to Jesus' day. You know, the people Jesus had the most trouble with were the religious leaders of his day, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, and other religious parties. And um, he had a real question about those who were accepting the mantle of authority, uh, but shirking their responsibilities for the flock. Uh, they would busy themselves with the liturgical accoutrements, the dishes, the cups, and so forth, keeping them clean, stacking them, all that business, but they were neglecting, neglecting the meteor obligations of their role. Jesus addressed them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. And Jesus sees them for who they are, and he says a day of reckoning is coming. Woe to you, Jesus says, echoing the prophet Ezekiel long before him. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Ouch. As an ordained clergy person, I squirm a little bit when I read these kinds of passages. You probably like to see the clergy squirm for a change. But you know, this hoarding of authority and shirking of responsibility is not a clergy problem. It's a human problem. And the scriptures warn us about it from the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the process, he created human beings. As it is written, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Formed from the dust of the ground. That is why the word human and humus, which means dirt, soil, share the same linguistic root because both words are rooted in the dirt, if you'll pardon the pun. And another, you know, that's, that's, that's a humbling concept when you think about it. But another word that shares the same linguistic root from with human and humus is humility. And it takes humility to recognize that we come from the ground. We are no different than the trees that come from the ground. As it is written, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. 
and we're no different from other creatures, species in the animal kingdom. Again, as it is written, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. We came out of the ground, just like all other species, and we are therefore humus beings. We are earthlings. As the Almighty proclaimed to Adam, from dust you are and to dust you will return. That's humbling. But it is hard to be humble when you are also created in the image of God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What does that mean? Does that mean that we all share God's howdy nose? Because if it does, I didn't get the memo. Does it mean that we share God's skin tone? That would be problematic. Indeed, God would have to be non-binary because he created male and female both in his image. What does it mean that we are created in God's image? God has no need for a human body. Our bodies are uniquely suited for a pretty narrow envelope, environmentally speaking. Uh, it gets too hot or too cold and it's uninhabitable for us. We can't breathe Martian atmosphere. Um, uh, take us too high, we get altitude sickness. You know, we, we're, our bodies are created. Our gut bacteria, all that stuff, uniquely suited for terra firma. God is not confined to terra firma. God created the heavens as well as the earth and has no need for a body like this. So we could not be created in God's image in the superficial, shallow sense of outward appearances. What then could it mean that we were created in God's image? The Creator created us to create. That's what we do. No other species comes close to creating like we do. Oh, they'll create a nest or something like that, but nothing like an internet or a computer with artificial intelligence or cities or culture. We create. And in that sense, we are created in God's image. And he created us that way because he had a special task for us to attend to. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it, or that can be translated to serve it, and uh, to take care of it. Uh, that responsibility requires a certain measure of authority, and we are given that. As it is written, God says to the first couple, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, and in this we're no, no, not unlike the other species. Uh, for he tells the, he see, also says, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds in the air increase. But he goes on with an additional uh, expectation for human beings. Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. 
rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. We create, not because we're co-creators with God of the heavens and the earth, but we do have enough in creative ingenuity to be useful as stewards of God's care for this little portion of creation entrusted to us. And that's the responsibility he gives us. And with that responsibility comes authority over the other species. But it's always important to understand the uh, authority given to um, subdue and rule in the context of the responsibility to, uh, to serve and to care for. It would be a disaster to separate uh, authority to subdue and rule from responsibility uh, to care for something. Humble, humus me beings get it, but once uh, we fall prey to the foolishness of arrogance and we are no longer created for the world, the world is created for us, um, then uh, that's a recipe for disaster. When Jesus' disciples fell prey to arrogance and started arguing about who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, you know that those who are regarded as the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If the rulers of the Gentiles can fall prey to arrogance, and if Jesus' own disciples can fall prey to the foolishness of arrogance, I don't suppose it's too big of a stretch for us to fall prey to arrogance now and then. One spouse assumes authority over uh, for the whole relationship and lords it over the other spouse. Um, or a, a boss becomes a bully. Or a world leader becomes a tyrant. From marriages to businesses to nations, whenever one grabs all the authority and shirks all the responsibility, we have a problem. Paul emphasized this with a body metaphor in his first letter to the Corinthians, where he writes, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And so it goes with our relationship with the earth. We are earthlings. We are humus beings. We come from the ground like all other species. And we have been given a responsibility to care for God's good earth. Now, we have the choice to make short-term profits 
um, by neglecting that responsibility. We may have that company that builds widgets and maybe in the, the manufacturing process results in some toxic byproducts, which can be treated, but that's, that, that costs money and eats into our profits. If nobody's looking, we can inject those toxic byproducts into the air, everybody else breathes as if it is an open sewer. Uh, or we can cast them into the water that people drink uh, as if it's the same. We can make short-term gain by using non-sustainable farming practices. To, to really farm correctly, husbandry actually improves the ground, improves the humus. But uh, we can bypass that and grow things uh, by exploiting the ground. It's going to require a lot more inputs into the ground in order to bring forth a harvest. Those inputs, of course, uh, wash off into the streams and off into big lakes like Lake Erie, which is about 20 miles that way, from which we here get our drinking water. And those uh, nutrients that have washed off also promote harmful algal blooms like the one that closed down Toledo's water supply a little further west from here uh, a few years ago and will eventually close down Cleveland's uh, where I live but uh, you know what if one part suffers every part suffers with it in a hole uh, if you take a fish tank and put a few drops of of uh, food coloring into the upper corner of it, you can't expect that food coloring to remain localized in that area. In very quick order, it will work its way throughout the whole system. And the same goes for uh, single-use plastics. We create those like they're going out of style. They got to go somewhere, and a good amount of them go end up in the ocean. They break down into microplastics, which are consumed by little critters that are consumed by bigger fish that are consumed by us. And uh, thankfully nothing consumes us, but those plastics end up in us like that uh, food coloring in the tank. We are a fishbowl. We are a whole. And if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. We may fuel an extravagant lifestyle with fossil fuels, the burning of which ejects greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which warm the earth. And uh, we may get away with that for a while. Maybe we don't initially suffer like the people of Bangladesh are. The rising sea levels from a warming planet threaten their nation now, which is only an average of three to nine meters above sea level. Um, there are 20 million climate-driven migrants that are projected for Bangladesh by 2040. Uh, and India is well aware of it, sharing a border with Bangladesh, and has already built a wall to keep them from coming as migrants to the land of India. It's sort of what we have a history of doing. Uh, so the people of Bangladesh had very little to do with putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, but they are suffering for it. There's not much justice in that. 
but they aren't the only ones who are going to suffer. It's like the, uh, the poor people in steerage of the Titanic. They went down first, but eventually everyone went down. And we can expect uh, that there is going to be a price to pay if we don't get a hold of the degradation of the planet, the shirking of our responsibility for this bit of creation entrusted to their care, to our care. Um, refusing to exercise our authority responsibly and refusing to care for this little corner of creation and refusing the wisdom of humility for the sake of the arrogance that we often choose is going to lead to a day of reckoning and woe to us on that dreadful day of the Lord. How will it happen? There's a character in an Ernest Hemingway book, uh, The Sun Also Rises, uh, who asks another character how he happened to go bankrupt. And the character replies two ways, gradually, then suddenly. I don't know if the end is near. Um, according to the best and brightest uh, among us, the climate scientists, the climatologists, trained who live, breathe, eat this, um, their answer to that question is, it's debatable. There are some who believe it's already too late and who are acting upon that uh, determination by making the hard decision not to have children, if that gives us an idea of the time frames we're dealing with. But there are other climatologists who believe that with aggressive action now to decarbonize our energy systems, uh, we can forestall disaster. Uh, so I'm kind of an eternal optimist, as long as something's debatable, I think that, uh, that you know, all of them agree that the clock is ticking and that the time is now for us to take action. Not to return to some prehistoric lifestyle, but to return to the Lord who always leads us to the promised land, who always leads us to a brighter day. As it is written in the prophet Jeremiah, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Let us keep hope alive as we rejoin our God-given authority with our sacred responsibility to care for creation. And to help us begin to embody this message into the future, we're going to have a prayer together. It's going to be a silent prayer and I'm going to use a little high-tech uh, little high-tech work here to give us a view of nature and we are going to consider how God is calling us individually and collectively to fulfill our sacred responsibility. Let us pray.
Amen.